92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. 92% because of a bike? Not just bikes. We also make treadmills and rowers. Oh, let me guess, for elite athletes only, right? Nope. It doesn't matter if you're an avid exerciser or new to working out. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try Peloton bikes, tread or row, risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. This is the Decibel Geek Podcast with Aaron Camaro and Chris Sinzak. All right, it's Decibel Geek time again. I'm Aaron Camaro, joined as always by Chris Sinzak. How's it going, man? Good. How are you holding up today, Aaron? Well, I'm feeling fine. You know, I mean, other than the fact that it looks like the album cover from Iron Maiden's Seventh Son of a Seventh Son outside, <laughs> but. Yeah. You know, other than that, not too bad. It's nice to hear you uh, back in your right mind this week. I'm back on the wagon. <laughs> <laughs> no more Jack Daniels for me. Oh no, I get too romantic. That's a that's a bummer because we got lots of response <laughs> to your to your performance last week. <laughs> yeah, that's a performance. That's a that's a good word. I'm still trying to figure out how to string someone's condom. It's <laughs> still in the research phase, but we're working in it. I um, don't even remember none of that. <laughs> oh, if you haven't listened to last week's episode, go back and listen to it. It's a real treat. Ooh, but uh, good time. Pretty good episode for a power ballads episode. Yeah, I thought, I thought we picked it was some pretty, pretty good, some unique songs. Yeah, we did. But uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. But uh, we're back this weekend. Hey guys, it's been a little while, so you know why don't we get back into some kiss-related material this week? Yeah, I mean it's so damn cold outside. We want to feel like it's July. Yeah, and speaking of hot, uh, we're talking to a guy whose nickname is Hot Sam. Hot Sam. How do you get a nickname like Hot Sam? We get into that in the interview. Okay, good. The guy that we're talking to today is Jay Hot Sam Barth, who was Kiss's front of house sound mixer from 1974 to 1976. That's awesome. How did you find this guy? Uh, the original Kiss Crew Facebook page, which right is on. a treasure trove of information and really cool people. Oh yeah! And uh, the as you guys remember, we uh, talked to Peter Musorakento a couple years guy. back and yeah. had him on for two episodes. And you know he was super nice. We still got to get Jr. on the show. We got to figure out a way to get back out to L.A. All of us together. Oh, totally. Let, let Moose give give us some more tours. Yeah, man. I want one of those tours because I missed out. But the yeah, best it, tour in Hollywood if you can get it. And those guys eventually, you know, recently put out the Out on the Streets book um, from the original Kiss Road Crew, and uh, a lot of talk about it on the internet and on uh, Kiss fan circles. And I'm you know hearing great things about it. And, yeah. As you know, Moose was detailed in you know the duties that he had as a roadie, and I like the behind-the-scenes look at the technical side of things and what those guys had to go through because you know, it's not all rock star parties and hotel rooms with, right. with groupies. These yeah. guys are the ones busting their ass while those guys are doing those things. Absolutely. So, and um, Hot Sam is one of those people, and we yeah, we find out why he's named Hot Sam, and uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff in here. Um, he, he did a lot of the big shows. He were, he was there for the Anaheim Stadium show. He was there for the three nights at Cobo Hall. He helped record Kiss Alive. He was the man on the sound, in the sound booth while Eddie Kramer was in the mobile recording truck outside. Hell yeah. So, uh, he How was cool. super nice to come on the show and I really appreciate it. So before I get into my talk with, uh, Hot Sam, let's do Geeks of the Week. Geeks of the Week this week are Brent Walter, Nico Tavellis. David Alpazar, Devin Fox, Todd Cunningham, Justin Hayes, Jeff Hoagland, Warren Money, Andrew Jacobs, Trevor McDougal, Mike Blunt, James Brendan Dunn, Wayne Cross, Mark Alden Taylor, Ian Wadley of the Rock and Metal Combat Podcast, Shane Abair, Darren Park, and Sit and Spin with Joe, Brian Knapp, Chad Pollock, Tom Cullen, Vic Rector, Bill, Jack Jack Russell shared the link. Nice. I think Mark Slaughter even shared the link, too. Yes, he now. did. I'm thinking about it. Mojo Dave, Hoops, DC, Derek Novak, Daniel Lee, Armando Cerna, Stealth, Music Mags and Wax, Raw Magazine, Hot Metal Magazine, Loudmouth, and Faces Rocks Magazine. Kick ass. So we have a good marketing department, and if you haven't been one of the people sharing or retweeting, please join our marketing department. That's right. Help us get the word out and uh, help us build the show bigger and bigger. We have a lot of plans this year. Heck yeah. You know, get your name added to that prestigious list of Geeks of the Week. 
So, uh, we ready to get into some kiss talk? Heck yeah, man. I'm always ready for some kiss talk. All right. Well, here's my recent talk with Jay Hot Sam Bart. member of it all you know yeah well <laughs> there's uh and let me go ahead and preface this by saying i have not picked up the out on the streets book yet i am going to but uh i have a wife and three children so finances have been re- really limited but i'm i'm hoping to pick it up uh, obviously because we know moose and we do know jr a bit um sure. but uh i kind of found you well you've been i've i've known about youth for a few years through kiss fan circles but you've uh been a little bit more visual lately on the uh, original Kiss Crew Facebook page, which sure. the book is a big deal, but that Facebook page is also a treasure trove of stuff that you guys did back in the day, and you've, you're you very active on that thing, and you know, as, as you've learned uh, pretty quickly, I'm sure Kiss fans want to know every single little minute detail of what you guys did. Oh, you bet, and I've, uh, you know, while I wasn't really a, a T-O-K-K, I I consider myself a tack point five, I guess you might say, <laughs> because uh, you know I joined when all the guys were still there, right. obviously. And I don't know if, it, I mean, there's stories of my joining in uh, the the Seuss and uh, you know the uh, the Alive book, and and uh, there's a good write up about it in in uh, the Tack book as well about my meeting the fellows and stuff, and and. Um, I was with, of course, a company called Fanfare, and we we were a local sound company in Ann Arbor, Michigan, mm-hmm. that was started by uh, two fellows, uh, Marty Priest and Kurt Andrews. And Marty was Alice Cooper's sound man, and Kurt was a sound guy for a band called SRC, the Scott Richard Case, which were a very big local band around Michigan, and they were famous for having one of the best. PA systems in the neighborhood. So uh, the two of them got together and started Fanfare. And um, I worked for, I, I met them at a free concert. I was working with a band called Catfish Hodge. <laughs> so long. <laughs> but Catfish had a big record back in the early 70s called The Boogeyman's Gonna Get You. And um, it was a big regional uh, thing. And, and we were booked by the same agency that did Ted Nugent and Alice Cooper and and all the Michigan bands, we would go to some of the same venues on the East Coast and, and whatnot. But we did a free concert and uh, met the guys at Fanfare, and they hired me. And the, that was in uh, early 73. And, uh, the, you know, a week later, I was on the road with Joe Walsh and Barnstorm. So Nice. Uh, and uh, that was uh, a lot of fun. And, uh, and then uh, one day, uh, Marty... <clears throat> before he met, did Alice Cooper, used to work with a band called the Pleasure Seekers. Uh-huh. And they were an all-girl band from Detroit. And one of the uh, the bass player in the Pleasure Seekers was a girl named Susie Quattro. Oh, yeah. And the Quattro name comes up a lot in uh, the stories of Kiss, uh, which we might get into. But uh, um, Susie had a show at the Michigan Palace Theater in downtown Detroit. And Marty, uh, she had hired uh, Marty to do the sound. And um, the show was Susie Quattro headlining, and Blue Oyster Cult was the second act. <laughs> the opening act was this band that none of us had ever heard of called Kiss. Okay. And I literally drove the truck, me and another fellow, from doing uh, Joe Walsh shows. We drove all overnight and arrived at the palace about 7.30 in the morning. And Marty was there with another crew. We walked in and we saw this line of marshals and a drum set set up on this forklift thing. <laughs> Three guys in black leather jackets sitting there. And, and I looked at Marty and I said, Marty, I don't know what's going on here, but I got to go home. <laughs> and uh, so I didn't even really do the first show that we did with Kiss because I had he had other people there to work because I had literally driven all night. Yeah. So uh, 
But at any rate, long story short, they loved our sound system, and they hired us to do uh, uh, as many regional shows as they could in the uh, early 74. Mm -hmm. And by the middle of 74, we were pretty much exclusive with the band. So right. that was a really embryonic time when they were growing into headlining. So, so describe your emotion the first time you see these guys in their full regalia and the makeup and everything. Well, we kind of thought it was nuts, Chris. I mean, to be honest, yeah. you, know, was, you know, we were all into a lot of different stuff at the time. We were kind of hippies from Ann Arbor, and and we were into the Mahavishnu Orchestra, and we, you know, we liked some British rock and roll and stuff. But I mean, we were we were pretty eclectic musically. I mean, of course, we just came off of Joe Wall's tour, and, and uh, you know, we see this onslaught of whatever's going on, and it was kind of like okay, <laughs> <You know? laughs> but. Uh, you know, it was fun because the kids obviously loved it, and uh, they were they were embraced by Detroit, as you probably know well. Yeah, just an amazing uh, an acceptance of the band. It was like you know, second home was was Detroit, and uh, of course, being from born and raised in Detroit, that 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 was cool. And uh, you know, once we got into it, of course, we made such great friends. You know, with uh, with uh, Jr. and Mick and and uh, and Moose and sally and and we all became and, and are still uh, dear friends to this day all of us you know those three guys in the leather jackets i left on her you know i consider great friends to this you know 40 years later we're, we're all still friends so yeah and that's a special thing you know yeah it was pretty it was pretty special times there's no no question about it and uh, you know, it's so many emotions that come up when you talk about it when you think about the things that we did you know we'd get on the bus and try to think of how to make things brighter and louder and the bombs louder and the, you know, the fire hotter and all that stuff, you know? <laughs> so, and then, and then years later you go and you see people like Motley Crue doing this thing with the drums. You go, we started that shit. You know? yep. <laughs> <laughs> it's your fault. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was fun. Yeah. And, uh, so we're talking, uh, what around spring or summer of 74 that you started coming in and doing stuff. <laughs> Yeah, well, early spring we started our first shows with with the group, and probably by the fall we were we were pretty much their almost hundred percent go to, uh, with the exception of when they opened up and stuff like that for all their headlining shows, mm -hmm. uh, at least throughout the Midwest and whatnot. And then, uh, um, yeah, I, I and I, I you have to forgive me; it's forty years. I can't sure. remember the exact dates, but at some point we became pretty much their permanent uh, company, and, right? Uh, of course, it was in December of 74 when Moose had his accident. And that's the night that I started mixing. So, um, Well, how fitting is it that you're talking, that we're interviewing you next? Because, you know, that was sort of the end of his story with them. And he went into great detail with us about the accident. So it's interesting that you took over at that point. So, I mean, were, were you at the show that he got injured? Oh, sure. In yeah. fact, um, I was out. At the front of house, of course, my job at the time was the system engineer, so I was babysitting the opening act, who at the time was Michael Quattro. Yeah. I told you that name would come up. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Michael, of course, is Susie's older brother. Mm -hmm. And um, he was uh, somewhat of a, you know, a pop star wannabe. He had this whole... Uh, Keith Emerson wannabe thing about him, you know, with a Mellotron and dreamt drama and... Uh, <laughs> But uh, Michael was playing out front, and um, and I heard the explosion. You know, I had no idea what it was um, until I, I I think it was Sally came out and said, "Moose blew his hand up. You're mixing tonight." I said, "Oh, geez, okay. <laughs> I guess that's what I got to do." You know, so uh, it was uh, it was certain. You know, Moose's accident was certainly no blessing. I never no. considered that. Uh, but I w I was very blessed that. Uh, the crew and the guys in the band had faith in me to to do it, and uh, and I felt uh, very proud of that at, at, at the time, and still do because, you know, I, as you know, I went all through all of '75 and uh, almost all of '76 with the band. Yeah, and we'll we'll go through each tour if you're good. Sure, okay with no, no worries. Okay, um, so but the well uh, the first question, well, one of the first questions I thought of to ask you is how the hell do you get the name Hot Sam? Oh, geez, that's, you know what, it's not nearly as dramatic as, as uh, you, you think, but uh, back in the old days, um, 
one of the things that I've, and you talk about music, I've always been a huge, huge Motown music fan. Mm -hmm. And um, the uh, the guys from Motown, uh, the Tops and Temps and all, they, they would buy their outfits from, <clears throat> excuse me, a place called Hot Sam's in downtown Detroit on Gratiot, right in downtown Detroit. Mm -hmm. And it was a famous place where they, you know, did all these fa famous outfits and, you know, suits and all the stuff that you would see those guys wear. And that's where the stuff all came from. One day I was working in the shop at Fanfare. Uh, we were doing something, checking cabinets, getting ready for a tour, painting, doing whatever stuff you do at the shop to get all the gear ready. And somebody called on the intercom and I picked it up and said, Hot Sam's. And uh, I don't know, the next time they did it, I said, Hot Sam's. And the next thing you know, my nickname was Hot Sam. <laughs> so, that's as stupid and as easy as it is. Well, like every time I see the name, I kept thinking, well, how do you, how does a guy named Jay get called Sam? I, I never could figure that out. So, um, well, well, let's just talk about a little about your interactions with the guys. I mean, like, what were your first impressions of them as people? Uh, the band or the crew? Well, let's start. Let's start with the band. Well, the band. I've, I always I'm the kind of guy that gets along pretty well with everybody. So I, I've I've always gotten along very well with them. Mm -hmm. uh, all the guys in the band, really. Um, and especially, um, well, I, I mean, I can't say especially, really. I just, I, I got along well with, with all the guys. I never really had issues, never had any matches or anything. Um, I know that, uh, you know, years later, back in the 90s, I mean, Paul would come out to cheap trick shows and sit with me at the mixer. So, oh, nice. <laughs> you know, we could, I consider him uh, friends, you know, not a, you know, not uh, uh, not ones that you see all the time, but uh, never a bad issue as far as I was concerned. You know, and they were always they were always characters. They were interesting. Uh, you know, Gene, as as everybody knows, is Gene. You know, uh, but there's no, you know, he doesn't he doesn't hide it. You know, it's like, you know, we used to get upset about reviews and stuff, and he'd say, "Hot Sam, any press is good press." You know. <laughs> And, um, you know, he'd ride the bus sometimes. He, he, he would enjoy riding the bus now and then. Gene was the only one, but he'd come into, you know, he'd get out at truck stops and stuff, and people say, oh, Kiss, well, you ever seen him without their makeup? And, you know, Gene would be right there with us, you know, in some, <laughs> in some truck stop in the middle of a bum, you know, where or whatever, you know. So, right. so uh, he enjoyed that. He, he, more than once he enjoyed doing that. That's yeah. And uh, impressions. Oh, well, let me ask you this: You worked with Joe Walsh before Kiss, so was yes. was working with Joe Walsh a good primer for dealing with Ace? Uh, there, there's a little bit of that going on. I mean, Joe was definitely a piece of work. He would be the one that started a water fight in the hotel. You know, you'd, right. you'd get a knock on the door and you'd see, oh, it's it's the boss. I'll open the door and you know, whoosh a bucket of water and hit you in the face. So, <laughs> You know, Joe was a definite character at the time, and he was a, he was a lot of fun. And and boy, that was a great band too. That that Barnstorm band was uh, was pretty phenomenal. But that's another story. Right? So. Oh, I love Joe Walsh. He's amazing. <laughs> and and, I, and he's another one he, along with Keith Richards. Another one where you're like, I can't believe this man is still walking the earth. You know? Oh, and he looks great. He's doing fine. Yeah, know? his last solo album was pretty awesome. Yeah. Um. So. But well, you saw so you saw them in Michigan when they were when they were doing well there. But I'm sure you worked with them on shows where they were not really considered popular. I mean, did you did you firsthand see like audiences kind of slack jawed at what they were witnessing? You know, not really. I don't think that. Um, I, I think that my because I was with Fanfare and doing mostly the headline stuff, I, I kind of missed some of that. Yeah, I think those those are probably. Uh, better, better questions for uh, Moose and Jr. And, and the guys that were at all the shows uh, in in late '73, early '74. Where, you know, early '74, I only had a few, and then by the time late '74 come around, you know, people knew that knew what they were showing up for pretty much by the time I was there. Yeah. Well, did you? Um one thing you're quoted in the Nothing to Lose book, I, and I, I was reading a little bit of that earlier today, and um, I noticed uh, a theme throughout you know, the book. And I know this is a question for people that were around a little bit earlier and like in the club days, but you know, they were headlining at these shows you were working at, but at the time you wouldn't call them a phenomenon, like a live hadn't hit quite yet. So, I mean, but did you have the impression that this band could go on to be what they became? 
You know, I'm not sure exactly when that hit in, Chris. I mean, there was a time, obviously, when um, when a live kicked in. You know, early 75, we kind of knew something was going on. That's for sure. Um, I, you know, it's 40 years. I can't. Re- I, it's hard to recall the, the real time that when, when that kicked in. But uh, mm-hmm. you know, by the time the, by the time late 74 came, and 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 we were coming back, like when they came back to the Michigan Palace and did the two-night stint, I mean, it was pretty clear that, you know, these guys are, you know, something's going on here, you know. So um, it was starting in late 74, the real recognition of the band was, was kicking in, you know. Right. So, um, yeah, with the, the Michigan shows, like the um, – the so obviously I'm guessing you were front of house mixer for the three-night stand at Cobo Hall where they recorded a lot of a live at, right? Yes. So yes. – you know the the impression I get from the TV reports that you see on the bootleg videos and stuff now is that it was like kind of hysteria for or that was kind of like the moment they arrived was doing a three night headlining stand like that. Um, was you know was Eddie Kramer heavily involved or was he just in a truck outside and you guys ran the stuff to the truck? Well, Eddie was very Eddie was very um, you know he wanted the show to be the show. Uh, he didn't interfere with much of what we did. In fact, uh, somebody on, on the on the crew site was asking a question about microphones and stuff the other day. There's a couple, <coughs> excuse me, a couple serious gearheads over there. You probably have noticed. Yeah. But, uh, I think the only microphone that I remember him bringing that he wanted to use was this Electro Voice 666 that we put on the kick drum, and. Um, it's literally the same microphone you hear on Led Zeppelin records, and Jimmy Hendrix records, and stuff like that. So it was uh, it was a learning experience for me. Most everything else was just as we did it. Um, I don't think he substituted anything else other than that 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 uh, that I can recall. Yeah. So, and he was very very sympathetic to the show. He wanted the show to be the show. Right. Uh, and and. Um, you know, we did sound checks and testing and stuff like that, but he was a breeze to work with and a wonderful guy. I still see him now and then to this day. I see him at NAMM shows and stuff, and you know, at trade shows where he shows up and does things. Mm-hmm. I always make a point to say hello. So he's, a, he's a great guy. Yeah, and um, when I look at those Kobo shows, like, you know, because as a diehard Kiss fan, we've seen and heard audios and, like, soundboard recordings from, before you know before they hit it big when they were playing clubs and then and it's a very rough around the edges band you'll hear you know mistakes and dropouts but then if if you if you watch those the video from those three nights it's just i don't know that in my opinion i know they've been around for 40 plus years now but musically i think they were at their very best around the time of those kobo shows i mean how do you feel about that well i'd probably have to agree with you it was you know it was before you know, it was before the two started getting crazy and going over the top, and everybody was, you know, it was it was exciting, and everybody was seriously into it, and into their, and on cue, and, and yeah, I'd, I'd probably agree with that. It's like a well-oiled machine, and like I've always told people, you know, Peter gets a lot of flack later on for his drumming, but I thought he was the MVP of those Kobo shows. I mean, he was fantastic. Well, they were some of their parts, that's for sure, at the time. Yeah. Well, and well, to, let's get on to Peter Chris. I mean, you know, he get he has quite a reputation for being like, you know, a bit moody and uh, sensitive. And you know, from what I gather from uh, some people that have worked with him, they say when he's in a good mood, there's no one better. But when he's in a bad mood, you better just get leave him alone. He could be a pain in the ass. There's no question. About that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'll you'll you probably will read in the top book some stories about when J and R had to get him off the ledge in Germany and uh. <laughs> stuff like that. So you know, it's been a, it was an adventure. It's really incredible how it, it's really incredible how long they kept it together with those four different personalities because all four of them are so different from each other, and especially working in close quarters during those early days, it's it's kind of a miracle the band ever happened if you really think about it. Yeah, well, they, they were they were pieces of work. I mean, Peter would just, he hated that drum riser so much, I mean, it, <laughs> especially in the early days, because in the early days, it was just like this walk, one of these, you know, these forklifts you see in a, in a warehouse or something? That's all it was. Oh. It's like one of these forklifts with, a, with an 8 by 8 thing on it, 
and that was it. And it was shakier than shit. And oh god, he hated it. He pissed and moaned every time he had to go up on that drum riser. And then finally, by I don't, I can't remember the date when we got the you know the big square one that had like a scissor lift or something. That was a, a huge step forward. And mm. but he still pissed and moaned about it. So. <laughs> Um, Paul, you know, as you mentioned, Paul came and saw you at the, uh, the front of house for cheap tricks. So it sounds yeah. like, you know, yeah. I, I like to hear stuff like that because, you know, you, we have heard things over the years about, I know some of the certain crew members have, have had issues with how things ended with the band, but, um, did you maintain a relationship with the guys after your time working with them? Well, to an extent, I mean, I, you know, I didn't see them very often, but, uh, there was a couple of times when I got to see them and. You know, I'd say hello, and, and things were fine. I went uh, went to the reunion tour and <clears throat> spent a little time backstage with them all. And when whatever that one was at ninety six or ninety seven or yeah, something like ninety six. Yeah, you know. So I saw everyone then, and you know, it's certainly not like we're close or anything. But um, I, I'm used to not. You know, I'm used to the fact that it's a business. You know, I it's. I spent 16 years with Bob Seger and got way less than that from that. So, <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, so let's talk a little bit about the road crew, um, with Mick and Jay, Mick and Campisi and Jr. and, uh, Moose and Rick Monroe. Uh, just what are your memories of working with those guys? I mean, what, it sounds like you guys were kind of a band of brothers on the road back then. And you guys really relied on each other. Oh, there's no question about that. Everybody was very, very tight. We have, uh, we've, we had great times together. Um, you know, I can remember times when, uh, you know, a time in San Antonio, Texas, when we, we all, me and, and Sally and, and Rick and our, and our girlfriends all went to, Mexico overnight and the next day I was the only one that drank beer they were all drinking margaritas and Rick had to do the lights sitting on a bucket with, <laughs> with a towel around him so <laughs> wow. you know it's a funny thing about being on the road Chris and I you know a lot of people talk about the parties and all that stuff and you know I I'll, I'll be the first to confess on a day off we partied hard but it's a lot of work you know you, you when the lights go down if you're not at your spot, you're, you're going to be on the bus and it's not going to be the tour bus. You know what I mean? It's, uh, yeah. it, it's almost militaristic how you are a band of brothers. You rely on each other, you work together and it's a, it's a job to do. And, um, you know, when it's over, you, uh, you know, you kind of make up for it, but it's a lot of work. Yeah. And, uh, Jr. is such an ever present, you know, figure from that era of history. And, you know, he shows up in photos all the time and, sure. um, you know, you get the impression that, when Bill, when like when Bill Coin couldn't be there, Jr. kind of ran the show. Would that be correct? Oh, absolutely. And you know, Jr. was the guy with the band, you know, all the time. And of course, then, uh, you know, after a little while, they they brought in uh, John and uh, you know to do security and and be with the guys even more often and stuff. So yeah, grew that that kind of grew. So. And I just heard that John just uh, had, had successful heart surgery the other day. I, you know, I knew it was happening. I hadn't heard the outcome yet. I heard it, that it was successful. Good, so. good, good. And also, while we're uh, down talking about people that you you know from back in the day, uh, Cindy Joe wanted me to remind you about uh, writing a million dollar check for her wedding. Okay. <laughs> Well, their wedding was a was a great. That was a good amount of fun down in Van Wert, Ohio, for crying out loud. <laughs> <laughs> and this was her and uh, Paul Shavaria, right? Yeah, yeah. Paul Shavaria. Shavaria. Right, I got the Sa- name. AKA Sally. Sally. Yeah. And uh, well, what are your memories of, of him? Oh, Sa- well, he's he's another one. I mean, he's a piece of work. He used to be just funnier than I'll get out. And um, I don't, you know, I I I wish I could. We trade Christmas cards, but I hardly ever hear from him. Yeah, and, and I, you know, it'd be fun to get him on on the like the crew site and stuff because he's just a piece of work. But yeah. I don't think he's ever done Facebook. He's he still works in the business, and his his second wife, um, are, you know, they do tour management and stuff. I mean, he's been out with the Rolling Stones and all kinds of people, um, you know, working and and you know, I, I've seen him off and on through the years, but mm-hmm. he just doesn't just not one to keep in touch a lot it'd yeah. be nice to get him on the deal so whenever i see old pictures of him I, I think i wonder how many times people asked him for paul stanley's autograph yeah, 
I got a buddy that works for Eventide. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Eventide. Sure, yeah. Bex processors and stuff. And, um, God, he looks like Paul. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> I always tease him about looking like Paul. So Yeah. <laughs> so um, w- would you stay based out of Detroit when you were do- working for them? Yeah. 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 So that, our- they would just say, we've got a run of headline dates, and then you you deal with the bus, and then after that you would you just go back home? Pretty much, yeah. yeah. So Okay, so you would get a break whenever they would go in to do studio work and stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And sometimes we would fill that in with with other bands. You know, it depends. And sometimes it, it, it. I can't remember all the schedules, Chris. To, you know, forty years. But mm-hmm. you know, we did things in between. When Kiss was off the road, we we would do regional shows. We we did a lot of shows back in the day with uh, Blue Oyster Cult. We did a lot of stick shows, um, and and an occasional Bob Seger show. Though I really. The way I really got to know Bob was from him opening for Kiss, even though we were all from Ann Arbor and Detroit. So right, you know. and I, it's it's always kind of been strange the way like Bob Seger opening for Kiss musically sounds fine because it's both blue car blue, blue collar hard rock music, but as far as image goes, they couldn't have been any different. Oh, it was totally different. <laughs> I mean, the kid the Kiss kids were yelling Kiss Kiss, you know. <laughs> Poor Bob. And here's Seger, who's a legend in his own right. Sure. You know? listening to kids yell yell for kiss so it it, it wasn't the uh i don't think it was that appropriate of a, a billing to be honest it was, a, it was more appropriate when we had folks like rush with us that were, i think a little more metalish but uh yeah i was gonna ask you about them because like they uh it seems like there was a serious friendship between those two bands and and also from what moose told us those two crews like the, the rush guys had the crew that they had was really good got along really well with you guys well, they yeah, and to this day, those guys are, are dear friends of mine. I see them all the time, and um, you know the lighting guy Howard, who was with them back then. I just was at dinner in Toronto a couple months ago, you know, and and my best friend CB, Craig Blazier, whose name you see on Kiss Alive as the monitor engineer, mm-hmm. he's he's Rush's production manager, has been for years. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So he still, you know, we still see them all the time. So very close friends. And yeah, I uh, I uh, took my wife to see Rush a couple of years ago here in Nashville, and you know, Rush is always known as the musical band and being amazing musicians, and they were. But the show that they put on was massive. I was very impressed. Oh yeah, they do, they're. I mean, for three guys, they do. A, <laughs> they put it out. That's for sure. Yeah, it was it was a, one of the better shows I've ever been to. But uh, you know, Kiss had a, a lot of strange bands that they played with, although. Or you could say a lot of bands played with Kiss who were strange. I guess it would be more appropriately. Yeah. But, uh, you know, you had Rush and then you had like Mott the Hoople and they did some shows with Black Sabbath. And, um, you know, I heard that Leonard Skinner uh, had a crew that was not exactly fun to deal with. I don't recall any of that issues or that. We did, uh, actually, we did more Skinner shows when I was with Seeger than with Kiss. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, some of those Southern boys could be a little obnoxious at times, you know, they, <laughs> you know, whatever. Yeah. But, um, so, so you're alive gets recorded alive and the, I mean, do you, do you remember when, when alive hit big and all of a sudden, you know, things were taken to a whole different level? Oh, sure. I mean, you know, by the fall of 75, it was a whole different world. You know, we, you know, everything was doubled and bigger and we started flying the PA system and. You know, it just, it all grew. It was really, and, and it, you know, from a, an audio and gear standpoint, Chris, it was really an embryonic time in the music business because um, all of those things, like nowadays, we take for granted. <clears throat> we were just like sort of pioneering and getting going on in those days. You know, even, even people like Claire Brothers, when they, you know, they were already kind of big at the time it was like claire brothers and shoko and then there was a number of regional guys around like us fanfare you know but to hang a pa at that time you know you you took a platform and strapped all your cabinets on there and and hung it up and nowadays you know these cabinets all have integral flying points and, and stuff like that and you know but a lot of it we were thinking about back then we were you know we were experimenting with with stacking the horns to create um more throw and louder, you know, mm-hmm. creating ways of making more throw to the back of the room and 
you know, stuff like that. <laughs> it was just, you know, it was, uh, we didn't have the, the electronics or anything. Everything, everything really happened while we were, while we were out there growing. You know, we had, I remember getting the first digital delays out there for effects and, you know, the, the phaser that I used for the drum solos and stuff was a, one of the first Eventide pieces that was, that came out called an Eventide Instant Phaser. You hear it all, I'm sure you've heard it on a bunch of the recordings. So. Yeah, on the uh, Peter's drum solo during 100,000 Years on a live, it's it's really prevalent. And yeah, I remember the first time when I, when I, I wound up being a guitar player, but when I was younger, I wanted to be a drummer. So I would like drum on my knees to the Peter Chris's Alive drum solo. There and, you go. And when it would go to the phaser part, I'd always be like, how is he getting that sound? I didn't know what the hell he was doing. I was well, that was, that was me turning the knob out there. Man. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really cool effect. And, and, you know, when I did like Gene's blood splitting was done with a tape deck. Oh yeah. And, um, yeah, we didn't have digital delays and digital echoes. I mean, echoplexes were first were just coming out. But what we used was a we we had a Sony tape machine that we put a motor control on, and you do the old the old studio trick where you go in the left side and out of the left side into the right side and out of the right side out and then and you know you, you've heard that effect on like rockabilly records and Elvis records. It's called tape slap. Uh huh. And it's just, it's an old studio trick that dates back to the, God, I don't know, late 40s or early 50s. And um, we basically did that, except that we, we would run it through a channel and then and then feed it back into itself. And then I'd turn the motor. So when the bass guitar would, he'd go, I'd go, <laughs> and, um, and he loved it. I mean, years later, he said, you know, nobody's ever done that to save it. What did you do? Yeah. <laughs> Because <laughs> everybody all tried to do digital stuff and all it was all too clean and too, you know, digital was too good. You know, right. the, the tape deck was just like saturated and overblown, and th that's what gave you the growl and the <laughs> what happened. Yeah, the what the, yeah, the way he, when he does the uh, the blood spitting on the Kobo Hall video, it uh, it almost sounds like a motorcycle engine or something revving or something. The way he you know he's he's starting to pick faster. So I guess that was you using that effect. A tape deck, I'm telling you. It was just, it was pure, just pure analog distortion. So. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, I guess you were you're dealing with really primitive technology as compared to what we have now. Oh yeah, oh yeah. That's cool. And then, um, so well, so t what's a day in the life of a front of house sound mixer for Kiss back in those days like? I mean, is it a is it a pretty uh, hectic day? Oh yeah. I mean, it, it if you you typically you're getting up off the bus and you're coming in and figured out where you want the PA stacked or flown or whatever. And, um, you know, you're helping to set stuff up. You're guiding stagehands to run the snake. You're setting up the front of house. You're, you know, and you maybe have a lunch break and then you're doing some more testing and stuff and you have a little sound check and maybe get it. Hopefully you get a little break before the show and you do the show and then you got to put it all away. <laughs> so yeah. it was a pretty full day. All right. So, well, being and you had the best seat in the house every night. Well, you could say that, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you're like above most of the audience through most. Of, although I'm guessing in some of these arenas and theaters and stuff that they played, you may have been in some pretty uh, precarious positions at some of those places, right? Yeah, and and back with, uh, you know, it's funny with Kiss. Um, we did, you know, we we, we had we kind of got what we got, you know, I, later on in my mixing career, like with Seeger tours and stuff where I could kind of be a little bit demanding and whatnot. I really got to a point where I would insist on a certain distance from the stage, mm -hmm. even though I wasn't in dead center, I would rather be a little off to the side because I would have confidence in the coverage of the system. But to me, the cues, the, the, the delay from the stage and knowing your cues was became very, very important. I mean, it was always important, but as I learned about it, I found that it was much easier to do when you're the same distance all the time. Because right. when you're 120 feet from a stage, if you turn something up when you hear it, you're late. Mm -hmm. So uh, you there always has to be a little bit of anticipation when you're mixing a live show. And I always found that about 90 feet was perfect for me because just... I just knew the timing. As I'm tapping my foot, I would know that the the three and 
you know, three and seven eights or whatever is where I had to bust my move. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah. I got you to, to hit the one. So yeah, that, uh, that was, uh, something that was always important to me. So yeah. And then mixing a live show is like that. You know, you're, it's, it's much different than mixing an album because you're at the mercy of like the crowd swelling and stuff like that. And, and there's a lot of times when you can actually move the crowd with you. And, and it's funny, you can hear some of that stuff on tape and they'll go, Oh man, that's way too loud. Well, you had to be there, you know, because right. it was just barely over the audience at that point. So, yeah. You know. So I guess you would you were witness to some uh, absolutely crazed audiences in America when they blew up, but then I know that when they started going over to Europe to do shows that they weren't exactly huge at that point yet, so they were kind of having to start over again. Um, so were you with them during those shows in England and in Denmark and that and during uh, was it seventy five? Yep. Yeah. Yep. So um, did you did you notice a difference in them having to win a crowd over a little bit more? You know, maybe a little bit, but the crowds were awfully good over there, especially like the Scandinavian countries were well into them by the time we got there. And, um, we had good crowds over there. I can't say that it was, I can't say that it was, you know, maybe a half a step behind what what America was at the point, but not a lot. They were, they were pretty rocking crowds everywhere we went. You know, some might have been, I think if I'm looking at like Zurich, Switzerland, maybe Paris was weren't quite as rocking as the Scandinavian or German shows, but yeah, but not terribly bad. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know if you see, I, I post up the, uh, I've got the European tour book. I've been posting up the, the, uh, advance sheets on the website. They're all up there. Almost all of them are up there. I think so. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Uh, well, speaking of that, I was going to ask you, you had posted a thing about, uh, circus crone on June 3rd in Munich, Germany. What, what yeah. I couldn't read what was in the newspaper clippings. What happened there? Oh, well, it was the, uh, the day before we played that venue, they had the, uh, or it was, it was about a week before, I'm sorry, about five days or something before we played the circus crone, they had the, the Muhammad Ali weigh in was there oh, okay. for the, uh, for the big fight that Muhammad Ali had. And uh, he fell through the stage. The stage broke. <laughs> that was about a week before we did that. Huh? Wow. And that was a big article about that. If you search it, you can find stories about Ali and Germany and stuff. And that. And the night of the fight is the night that we that Peter bought the hotel room in, uh, where was it, Stuttgart, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And we had to bring him in off the ledge, JR and I. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, so you were there when Peter was doing this too? Well, yeah, every time Ali would hit the guy, Peter would break something. So oh, you know, he punched the wall or, you know, hit the lamp or do, you know, he was just kind of out of control. And uh, <laughs> I can't remember what it cost him, but he literally, he pretty much bought the room. So sounds like it was always an adventure with him around. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so weird. Cause we've talked to Lydia on the show and Lydia is such a down to earth person. It's like so hard to believe those two were ever married. Lydia is a sweetheart, isn't she? She is. We we had a great time talking to her, and um, yeah, I was just like, it's amazing that those two were ever compatible, as different as they are as people. Great gal. Yeah. So, uh, well, let's talk a little bit about Bill Coin. I mean, how how present was he on on the road back in those days? Oh, geez, he he was around quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, you know, him and Sean. Um, Sean would come out to a lot of shows at that time, especially around the recording times and whatnot, and. You know, you've probably, um, Sean Delaney was uh, quite an integral part of all that they did as far as the look and the, the moves and the dances and the, you know, the the choreography was, was Sean. Yeah. yeah. He really guided all of that stuff. So, uh, and, you know, Bill was, Bill was a businessman. He got them to where, where they got there, you know, and of course, um, I don't, I, I don't know. I'm not a huge business follower much myself and I don't know all the details, but as everybody knows, when it went over to the whole Glickman Marks thing, it was a whole different scenario then. And yeah. Kind of when we all left. Yes. Shortly, shortly after that at any rate. So yeah, was it, was it basically around the, the, the destroyer tour that all that happened? Yeah. 
and we we did the destroyer tour and then at, at uh, what was it the end of September they took a break in October of 76 and then when they came back out in November what did they call it something else but uh, we were pretty much all gone then mm-hmm. there was a few left though. a few guys stayed on <clears throat> I think Fritz you know Fritz stayed on and and Chuck Elias stayed on and but a bunch of us left they the sound company left fanfare left and um they basically just bid it out to a lower bidder, and and uh, we slid right over into doing Bob Seger, who was the perfect timing for us at that time. So. Right. So with the Destroyer tour, um, obviously they go from you know a, a, a relatively you know they had for a, well they were at it was a big show either way compared to other bands, but the Destroyer tour took it to a complete different level stage wise. Um, yeah. I mean, were, was it interesting to see? You know, such growth on stage because I mean, just a it became a serious production. But did did you feel like it was a good evolution for them to go to that big of a stage show and the costumes getting more glitzy and everything? Well, I, you know, to an extent, I, I have a saying though, uh, Chris. When you know, we were there when, before leather and studs became spandex and sequins. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, to me, it to me that that saying kind of. Uh, kind of wraps up the whole the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, um, it, it takes it, it it epitomizes the you know the, the kind of raw rock and roll nature to the kind of maybe becoming a little overproduced nature that yeah. things kind of went to. I think, but yeah, it was it was fun to be there when it was leather and studs. Right. So. But yeah, because that that stage show was just massive and. It's uh, I don't you know I don't think that they've done anything like it since, but you know I guess you, did you have to throw more tricks into the bag as far as the sound mix for for the that tour? Not really. I mean, I I, I think we had um, uh, if I, I'm trying to remember exactly what the gear mix was, but we definitely had you know I, at that time I pro- I had an Eventide harmonizer in addition to my phaser. Um, I think I still used the tape deck because nothing else would make that sound. Mm-hmm. But we had uh, we had some more things. We had some out, outboard gear. We had we had a, a lot more compressors and and just you know effects you know tools to, to help make things better. I know that we advanced the drive systems in the in the PA quite a bit to help make things more efficient, louder. Of course, we added more PA. We did all kinds of stuff like that. Yeah. And one of the shows, well, one of the probably the most famous show from the Destroyer tour was that Anaheim Stadium show, and you were you were there for that, right? Oh yeah. yeah. So um, that I mean that was uh, as as the Kobo three night stand was kind of a landmark moment. I'd say that was the next landmark moment to where we go from small arenas to stadiums. Yep. Um, yeah. How? What was that day like? What do you remember from it? Oh boy, that was a hectic day. I mean, it was just a uh, it was a long week. I, if I recall, of course, we had a lot of big bands on there too. And we had Nugent and Seeger, and you know the Flo and Eddie guys were a riot. They were they were characters, and uh, it was a fun show. But, you know, it was it was great. It was yeah. a lot of work. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so all right, so you know, later in '76, you said they take a break, and then how? Well, how how were they? How did they let you guys know that you weren't going to come back, or did it just sort of get assumed that way? Well, no, they they actually, um, you know, they took bids for the sound, and you know, we had kind of spent two and a half, two years or whatever it was, making very little to nothing, and you know, we said, hey, you know, instead of you know, we need a little bit something for the effort here, right? And somebody else came in cheaper, and that was it, you know. So that's business for you, you know. Yeah, and you were, I'm guessing, you were in touch with the other guys on the crew when this went down, right? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it was that's just the way it was, and you know, Jr. left at that point. There was a bunch of us that left at that point. A few of them, you know, I, I know Chris. I know uh, my good friend Chuck Elias stayed on. You know, Mick left earlier in '76. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mick had uh, had some health issues that that he had to leave uh, the tour, and uh, my buddy Chuck from Detroit, who had I. Me and him were roadies for a band when we were 12 years old. Wow. You know, I said, well, you know, I got a buddy that could do this. And, you know, I think he could handle Peter and came out and 
uh, you know, Chuck and Peter were like, like brothers for three or four years. He lived at Peter's house, uh, and did everything for Peter. And then, uh, I don't know, at some point Peter decided that he Chuck owed him money or something and which is just insane. But. <laughs> oh man. So, well, I mean, but, uh, you know, you went on to do a whole lot of stuff with a whole lot of big artists after this. And, but I mean, was this kind of, do you feel like this was your, your start in the industry? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, well, of course, I, you know, doing Joe Walsh before that yeah. was, uh, was a pretty good start. <clears throat> and, uh, and kiss was, was a great, uh, addition to that. And then, uh, you know, moving up into the Seeger gig was, was big for me because he was just taken off skyrocketing at that point too. So right. uh, that was great. And, you know, Seeger didn't tour a lot. So when he was off, I did, um, geez, I did Blondie. I've done numerous tours with cheap trick. I spent two years with Rod Stewart, 84 and 85. Uh, and then back out with Seeger, and then back out with Cheap Trick. In the 90s, I spent three years doing Aretha Franklin. Um, so I've done a lot of great singers, I think. Yeah. <laughs> That's one thing I'm blessed with, uh, having been able to do Aretha and Rod Stewart, Robin Zander, um, and um, got Brian Howe with uh, with Ted Nugent. Uh, sure. I, I've done some... I've. I've mixed some good singers, which is really a blessing. <laughs> so. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so I just well, how does how do the working with all those artists compared to Kiss? Does Kiss really stand out? Well, it was such a different time, Chris. That, you know, it was uh, it was a lot of fun, and like I mentioned earlier, it was really it was kind of fun. Be, it was the, when I look back on it, the fact that we pioneered so many things and did so much stuff that that went on to so many other different bands yeah. to me, that was really a special part of, of doing kiss. Yeah. I was the, you know, I, and I'll be quite honest, man, if in 1975, if you'd have told me they were going to still be going in 2015, right. I'd have called the guys in the white suits to come take you away. I'd have thought you were nuts. Or, or that you some guy'd be pestering you on Skype about talking about it. <laughs> you know, here we are. I mean, it's, it's uh, it's quite an enduring thing, and that you know you when you you know there's a lot of pride looking back on that. That's for sure. Yeah. You know the other bands were all great too. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, this was fabulous stuff. And Rod Stewart, uh, you know, we Rod Stewart was different because he's a worldwide star. Sure. You know, uh, Bob Seger's big, but nothing like Rod Stewart when you get around the world. When you you know with, when you're with Rod Stewart, it's like tabloid shit. You know, it's like. <laughs> You know what you know what I mean? It's like yeah. uh, it, 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 you know, it's like tabloid big. You know, everywhere you go, it's Rod Stewart. You know, yeah. and, um, and and we went to all over South Africa, South America, Asia, Australia. You know, just worldwide artists, and um, you know, then and then doing Aretha Franklin was fun. You know, she she always rode on a bus. Me and Big Ed, another guy would we'd fly out on a Thursday and come home on a Sunday and do a couple shows somewhere. You know, they were all famous shows, Washington, D.C. We would do, you know, we would do things like Bill Clinton's 50th birthday party and stuff, you know, and come <laughs> home on on Sunday night. So, you know, that was it. That was special in its way. And probably the, I got to say, you know, it's close to being my favorite band ever to work with is Cheap Trick. I mean, yeah. just the greatest guys in the world and just a phenomenal rock and roll band. And we also went all over the world and did a lot of stuff. So it's all been fun, man. It's a, it's hard to pick one or any one or any whatever over the other, but it's yeah. all been, I've been blessed. So yeah, it sounds like it for sure. Yeah. No, I'm hoping cheap trick eventually will get in the hall of fame. It's ridiculous. They're not in there yet. Hello. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, that's, uh, that's short sighted if to say the least. So let me ask you this. When you were, when you were mixing front of house for kiss and say 75, 76 and, you know the they had the whole mystique about them at the time with the makeup. How how often were people, were kids trying to pull at your pant leg and going, "Hey, what do they look like without the makeup?" Oh, you get it quite a bit. You know, <laughs> yeah. it was it was kept quite a mystery at the time. You know, they did a good job at keeping it off the press and stuff like that. It was pretty rare to see 
you know, you see more pictures now than you did then. That's for sure. Sure. Yeah. Cause I, yeah, I'm back then. Oh man, it was like mystical or something. If you ever oh, got yeah. to see that, the fact that, I mean, the, you could have probably told people, I know what they look like without their makeup and it, people would have been shocked. <laughs> yeah, you do. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you're right. It was fun. Yeah. Before I let you go, uh, you know, one person that I don't have the opportunity to talk to cause he's no longer with us is Mick Campisi. Yeah. Uh, what do you what do you remember about Mick? Oh, uh, the Texas heartbreaker! What a character he was! Just uh, oh, Mick was a piece of work. We loved him to death, and and uh, you know he had he had his demons at times, and then he developed his health issues. But boy, he I I wish he was here to see the book and stuff because yeah. he dreamt of doing this book for so many years, and he talked about it, worked on it, and. and uh, it was just a, it was a heartbreaker to lose the heartbreaker. That's yeah. Sure. Yeah. Cause the thing I, you know, I didn't get to know the man, but the, what I re- remember the most of every picture I ever saw, the guy had a huge grin on his face. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Just, he, he certainly was. But yeah, you guys, uh, you know, it's, it's an interesting story to, to hear from you guys that worked on this crew because, you know, when you're a kid and you see kiss and you see all these huge explosions and stuff and, it's just this big stage show. It's all professionally run. You don't realize all the people that it took in the trenches to move that show from city to city and make those guys look and sound as good as they did. It was, it was certainly a, it was certainly a trip. That's for sure, Chris. No doubt about it. Well, I'm happy that um, the book is out, and I, you know, and the book is out, and then those guys get the credit on the book. But I wanted to have you on the show because you are every bit as part of that road crew as they were. So I, you know, and I think you deserve some recognition for all the work you did. Well, I appreciate that, Chris. It was, it was a lot of fun and, uh, it's a lot of fun to spend a moment with the fans and, and, uh, you know, I'm on the websites open to questions. If anybody has any, you know, let me know and I'll do my, I'll do my best to remember as a 61 year old guy can do. So <laughs> well, they're going to ask you what happened on the second Saturday of September of 1975. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we we are a nerdy bunch, us Kiss fans. So. Well, it's, it's cool. It's a lot of fun for me. I appreciate it. Well, thanks again for doing this. All right, Chris. My pleasure. We'll keep in touch, and if there's ever anything else that we can keep in touch about, you let me know. I absolutely will. Thanks again, Jay. All right, Chris. Good night. Thanks, night. man. Man, that was fantastic. It feels like July in here already. It does, yeah, and there's a lot of uh, a lot of stuff in the works for July. Jay, Hot Sam Barth, appreciate you coming on the show. Um, as I mentioned, he's you know, obviously works hand, side by side. I'm going to say hand by hand. That's a little weird. Side by side with the uh, original Kiss Crew guys that just put out the Out on the Streets book. There's going to be a link in the show notes to purchase that book and support these guys because they did a hell of a lot to get that band on the road. Heck yeah, they did. And from what I hear, it's an awesome book. I'm getting my copy. I know you've got one on the way, and you know everybody should get in on the action. If you're a Kiss fan, well, you listen to the Decibel Geek podcast because you know we're huge Kiss fans, too. And like we said, go back into the archives. There's all kinds of cool Kiss stuff back there for you to check out and listen to, including that two-parter with Moose Orokinto, you know, and that's fantastic stuff. Some of the highlights of anything we've done here at decibel geek so yeah absolutely very cool you know you you're kiss fan central right here we're, we're taking care of you cool well we got uh, a really fun show planned for next week yeah we do with something a whole lot different than what we're used to but before we slide out of here and get back to you next week i want to remind everybody to check us out at decibelgeek.com there's all kinds of cool stuff going on there we'd be remiss if we didn't mention the article by Baco, the review of jack russell who we had some great white on the show last week very cool you know he shared it and he man it was it was excellent when went and seen jack russell doing the uh storytellers deal up in wisconsin yeah i i'm very envious that he got to go do that yeah man i'd love to see that come around here you know and it's a great article check it out there's all kinds of articles being written at the website by our awesome writers you know all the time cool stuff is popping up on there while you're there you want to help us out hit that donate button send us a little something you know why not i mean we're good we're good for it. Yeah, there's there's <laughs> definitely no car repairs that need to be paid for or anything like that. Right, oh, yeah. Jeez. Good Lord. Real life, right? Yeah, real life. But uh, Still got a show, though. You know, donations are cool. You want a little something for your money? Well, we got something for you. It's Decibel Geek t-shirts, you know, and you've got to have one because you want to be cool in the world. You want people to look at you and be like, look at that guy. 
Look at that shirt. What yeah. is that? What is that? And then you're a walking billboard of coolness. That's right. You just click on the, the store link on the uh, decibelgeek.com page. And also, more than just shirts, though, there's like phone right. cases, there's stickers. We've had some people say, how do I get a sticker? You get yourself Go a coffee mug or something. A coffee huh? mug. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff there. Neat. I love it. So, Very uh, cool. I think we're good. I think we're good, too. So I guess we'll see everybody next week. See ya. of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. 92% because of a bike? Not just bikes. We also make treadmills and rowers. Oh, let me guess, for elite athletes only, right? Nope. It doesn't matter if you're an avid exerciser or new to working out. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try Peloton bikes, tread or row, risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial.